Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, this is Sarah Merrick with the Church Times podcast. Lee Stockdale is a poet who lives in Western North Carolina. And earlier this year, it was announced that he had won the United Kingdom National Poetry Competition for his poem, My Dead Father's General Store in the Middle of the Desert. His poem, described by the judges as remarkable and full of beauty, wit and grace, was selected from more than 17,000 entries, all entered anonymously from 103 countries across the world. So Lee, congratulations on the poem and on the win. What a fantastic achievement. I know that the win was announced a, a couple of months ago, but I wonder, have you come down to earth yet? Um, I, indeed I have. I I, uh, I came down pretty pretty quickly because right after, uh, right the day after we won, I say we, my wife, and in fact, my son was there as well. We went to a wonderful showing of uh, the Book of Mormon, and if anything will bring you down to earth quickly, it's the Book of Mormon. <laughs> sure, absolutely, yeah. So, um, was it? What did you did you get a phone call? Was it an email? Was it you know? How did you hear? Oh, I'm so excited that you've asked that because, <laughs> um, you know, it's curious. I mean, ironically, we're with the Church Times. I volunteer every Friday afternoon uh, at church, uh, our church, uh, Trinity Episcopal Church in Asheville, North Carolina, and. I got a curious email from the Poetry Society in London and um, a woman who I now know as Judith Palmer, and but I didn't know of her then. She asked me all these questions about this poem that I'd submitted to the competition. Um, it, did I really write it? Did I stand by it? Had it been workshopped? Did it lean heavily on other influences? And I said, um, and essentially, had anybody ever, ever seen it? And I said, oh, no, it's it's mine. And I wrote it. And uh, and I recall it uh, about a figure in the desert. And I wrote that back to her about 3 p.m. that day. And I was sitting in the living room here at home with my wife, Gail. And I got this email from her that said, congratulations, you've won the United Kingdom National Poetry Prize. And my wife was sitting next to me and I called out, oh my God. And I guess it was with such a kind of an unusual tone of urgency. She looked at me quite seriously and she said, has someone died? Oh, Which I always think is rather funny at the time, because, but but I've said this to other people, they, they don't think that's very funny. And I think it was like eight o'clock in the evening here. And Judith Palmer said, um, it's late here in England, but you can call me. And I thought, well, I'm going to call you. And so and so then that began an interesting two months of secrecy where I wasn't allowed to tell anyone. Um, and so except my wife. And and that was that was a lot of fun. Fun because the Poetry Society, by the way, is filled with fabulous people. I mean, I and I so I interfaced with about oh three or four others in that the Poetry Society their publicity person and other people. And they're just so wonderful. And especially Judith Palmer, who I just think the world of, who has a has a very hard job. You know, gosh, 17,000 poems and, you know, really very complicated job. But uh, 
I hope I I made it uh, less complicated for her. And it's extraordinary. I mean, you you some of the other names who've won this prize before. You know, it's very very impressive, very prestigious. Yes. Well, you know what? Here's what I think, and I, and I can say this to you. I absolutely believe that this was a gift of the Holy Spirit. I really do, because I don't know how else that could possibly happen. Really, almost eighteen thousand poems, and they picked mine. Um, I mean, it's extraordinary, and I really believe it's a gift. And and I will tell you too. I, I think it's because the poem harkens back to my father's death death by suicide when I was 11. I'm now 70. I've worked through that. I've come out on the, I think, on the other side. And I'm able now, I hope and believe, to be a healing entity a little bit. And I really believe, honestly, that the Holy Spirit just thought, you know, here's a poem that may be actually not just perhaps literary, whatever the heck that is, but could perhaps be helpful and healing. You know, so I really that's that's how I think that happened. That's that's wonderful to hear. We'll we'll go into the poem a bit more a bit later. But could you start by um, telling us something about your father, who he was and his story? My father grew up poor in Mississippi. There was a horrible flood in 1927. It destroyed their home. And then after that was the Depression. Now, this is this is interesting. I only know this because. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump forward. Uh, he became great friends with Jack Kennedy, uh, John F. Kennedy. And uh, Jack nominated him to become ambassador to Ireland. And in the normal course of events, when one is nominated, the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, does a background check to make sure the person is, you know, a good American. They went back to all of, or many of, of the neighbors that grew up around that are my father's family. And it was in fact through, and only through those narratives uh, that I learned, because I didn't learn this from my family. I learned, because no one knew, but I learned through the FBI, how ironic, that his father, my father's father, my grandfather had a drinking problem. And some said he drank himself to death. My grandmother and the two little girls literally left my father as a teenager alone in Mississippi to fend for himself because they had to go to Kin in an adjoining state, Alabama, to live because they had no food or they did not have enough food. My father became a, a football player in high school. I don't know how he lived, if he was homeless, whom he lived with. Uh, he got himself a scholarship, a football scholarship to the University of Miami, moved to Miami, became, you know, he's a natural leader. He was a leader of all of his classes. Uh, at the University of Miami and of his fraternity. Uh, he was uh, close friends with a, with a guy named George Smathers. They both went off to, the, of world, to World War II. George came back early because he did from the, from the, army, from the uh, war. He said to Grant, my father, I'm gonna run for Congress and I'd like you to run my campaign. Daddy did that and George won and then asked daddy to come up to Washington to serve as his administrative assistant, which dad did. Uh, by that time, dad is married, has two little girls, my big sisters, one of whom is still living, my older sisters, uh, Annie and Sally. Uh, and Annie is still living and I'm very close to her. On that hallway was right next door, two doors down, Jack Kennedy, 
and also down the hall, further down the hall, literally and metaphorically, was Richard Nixon. But um, they become they they became wonderful fast friends. They were they were all in the Navy. They had all been in the Pacific. Um, they were all the young new young Turks, the new leaders in George Smathers' senatorial oral history. He was in the Senate for 18 years, as it turned out. And um, he says, Jack Kennedy loved Grant Stockdale and Grant Stockdale loved Jack Kennedy. Um, and so they became, they loved, both loved football. They became great friends. Uh, Dad uh, loved football. Jack loved football, played for Harvard until he was injured. Daddy and Jack would go off into Orange Bowl games. That's, I don't know if you're aware of an Orange Bowl game, but that's held in Miami. It's a very big deal, very exciting. And then um, da- Jack broke, no, it didn't break his back, had back surgery and recuperated in Palm Beach, not far, maybe an hour from Miami. And daddy used to go up there in the mid fifties and visit him on a regular basis and got to know him on a different level personal level. My brother, in fact, went up with him at least once. My brother was five years old, now deceased, Uh, was five years older, older than I. But he said that uh, he remembered Jackie Kennedy being really dear to him as a little boy. I don't know, he must have been maybe eight or nine at the time. But she gave him some lunch, you know, tuna fish sandwich and soup or something like that. Uh, But they became very close. They played golf together. He visited our home in Coral Gables, Florida, where we lived. Um, that was the one time that I met him consciously. In other words, he may have come and I just, he was just another person coming by. Dad played golf a lot. But then he did come by as either the president of uh, elect or as a, as a president hopeful because he drove up with a number of limousines uh, in front of the house. And I did meet him as a young boy. I was eight or nine and asked him what I could, I just remember, because I've been, I was reminded of it eternally by my mother. Uh, I asked Jack Kennedy, uh, then Senator Kennedy, what I could do to become president. And he said, learn your, learn your history and mind your mother. Right. You can imagine, yes, I yeah. was often reminded. Right. So that's, that's how they came to meet um, and, and how their friendship flourished. So it was a great friendship. And I think it was an unusual friendship because, you know, Jack was very wealthy, came yeah. from a wealthy family, well-heeled Bostonians. And yet he found this, um, you know, this center core, something between my father and himself. And dad was just a, you know, a humble origins kind of a yeah. guy. So I think it says something about Jack Kennedy mm-hmm. more than it says about my father. Yeah. Who, who, who would not want to be friends with you know this dashing guy, you know up and coming? Obviously, now the first and and George Smathers said of Jack Kennedy, he was the last guy in the world you would think to be president. He was he was ill, he was sick, he was thin. They had to call to him in the hallway and say, "Hey, Jack, we're going over to 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 cast our vote." And he would, he said, George said he would lean on Stockdale or Ted Reardon or I, 
and we would walk him over there. Having said that, the story is the first day my father met Jack Kennedy, he came home and my mother says, he said, this is this man's going to be president one day. So it wasn't his physical, you know, body pr prowess, yeah. presence, but it was his mind. I mean, and Jack, I think Jack, I mean, I, I get goosebumps when I think about, you know, Jack Kennedy and what he meant and continues to mean to this country, you know, his his uh, energy, his optimism, his vision, you know, for all of that. Um, so he had a mind which which I think dad appreciated immediately. And tell me about your mother. What was she like? Wow, my mother. Uh, you know, this is wonderful. She came from Canton, Ohio. She took the train to Miami to go to the University of Miami. She was met by some sorority girls from the Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority. And they were taking the, her back uh, to their sorority house. And they stopped on the way at a soda place, let's say a, a soda joint, you know, I think it was Doc Fetter's soda. There was a young man there, college boy, and he gave all the girls a big hug. He was obviously adored by all these young girls. And my mother, who had just gotten off the train, uh, this young lady, Alice Boyd Stockdale, Alice Boyd Magruder, um, thought to herself, gosh, who's this young man? Handsome? Girls all love him. But he does, it doesn't look to her, doesn't look to me that he he's any of their, you know, he's not their boyfriend. Like they all seem to adore him, you know, sort of mutually. So they, they saw each other a week or so later in the cafeteria. And he said, oh, hello, you know, oh, hello. Uh, do you want to have lunch together? They took their trays outside and um, ate. And it began to rain. It must have been a wonderful conversation. They back, and, and by the way, we grew up only blocks from this, actually from the university. And my mother, well, on more than one occasion, pointed out the very sort of rotunda open to the sky where this took place. And she said, we scooted back because we didn't want to get rain up. We ate, we put our trays down, but I was sopping wet and he carried me in my arms back to the sorority house. Wow. And, and they were never apart. Yeah from oh, that day wonderful said to her um you know i know all the best men on campus he said to her at that lunch yeah. i know all the best men on campus if you tell me if there's someone you like i can introduce you and she said i like you gosh that was brave <laughs> she won and and again i only know this from having researched him in university of miami documents papers yearbooks and I found that she had won both first and second prize in a poetry competition. She had been writing poetry since she was six. I know because I have a poem of hers that rhymes Jesus with sneezes. I thought that was rather dear, very young poem. And um, she loved poetry. Um, she loved Anne Sexton. Uh, she was submitting poems early, I mean, obviously in in college and later um i have a uh, a kind of an, a silver aladdin's lamp she bought with the first uh, money that she got for publishing a poem in either 
Saturday Journal, what is it, Saturday Evening Post or Ladies Home Journal or something like that uh, in the mid 50s. And then she became, you know, rather a regular with those sort of um, mainstream magazines. When we came back from Ireland, because we came back um, in 62, Daddy had served, wanted to come back to the United States. I wanted, I think he wanted to become involved with Jack Kennedy's uh, new campaign, next campaign for president. Jack and dad went out on a trip out west to the Western United States. And he came back from that. It was about a week long trip. And um, daddy said to mom, well, the chief wants you to write a book of poems for Ireland. And she said, you mean about Ireland? She said, he said, oh no, the chief was very clear. This is a book of poetry for Ireland. And so she began uh, her book of poems, which became um, called, it was titled To Ireland with Love. Um, and it is really lovely. Uh, and uh, it's funny, Sarah, that Jack would come and spend the night and mom, I mean, I don't know if this was, I mean, she had poetry all over the house. So this could perhaps have not even been a conscious thing. But Jack woke up the next morning and at breakfast asked dad, well, what did you, what do you think about Alice Boyd's poem? And then he would mention it or mention the title and dad would say, oh, you know, I don't know that poem. And then he'd say, well, what about the one with the deer in the park uh, with the man strolling? Dad would say, I don't think I've read that one either but the point and then jack would begin ribbing him that he wasn't even reading his wife's poetry of course it was everywhere and uh and so she loved poetry uh it became i think more important to her in a way after daddy died i know that she was going uh kind of on a weekly basis you know now she's got a book published i think she was giving a class at the university of miami so it kind of opened up in a new way for herself, you know, an avenue for healing for herself. Yeah. You know, um, I think that, uh, well, I know that uh, our father's death, her husband's death was devastating. She was 40, still young. You know, at the time I was 11, I think 40. I, I mean, I just thought, well, but you know, she's very, very old, but she, of course now I'm, my, my myself from 70 and, uh, and 40 seems like the world is ahead of you. Um, and so it really, I think, was a healing factor yeah. for her, for yeah. mom. So this loss of your father, I mean, you, you've touched on it. You were just 11 and and it, the pain of that's clearly gone incredibly deep. Um, and you've already, I think, suggest, hinted this, that, that the poetry has somehow helped you come to terms with that loss. It's been heart, part of the healing journey. Could you say, say any more about that? The smartest thing I ever did was to drop out of college at my sister Sally's suggestion and to get into therapy because, you know, you get into college and you start, you know, um, intuiting psychology and philosophy and religion and learning about concepts and, and resources, resources, really. I mean, I had wonderful teachers, but um, I was realizing, oh, gosh, a lot of what I'm learning kind of can be me. I can. I could be that person with that psychological issue. And and I started talking about this uh, with my sister Sally, um, and she said, "Well, you know what? Um, I'm in therapy. She was ten years older than I. I'm in therapy with this great guy in Washington D.C. 
I, I dropped out of college. I got into therapy with the same person, wonderful man. And then I was with him for all of six months and then declared myself healed. You know, that's the cockiness of a 20 year old. And that was at 20. And then I was in, I had an army and a legal career. And it was only until probably maybe 10 or 12 years ago that when I began seriously writing poetry again, post legal law career, you know, it was unavoidable that, oh gosh, if, I, if I'm writing poetry, I find that it's not a surface kind of a discipline. It's natural that I would go deep within myself. And I began writing poems about my father, you know, and then I began reaching out to better poets uh, re locally that I know and, and getting with them. And I got with a, a, a poet uh, who I still, you know, love and admire. Her name's Kathy, and uh, she is a former poet laureate of the state of North Carolina. She suggested I get my master's of fine arts at somewhere, you know, where I'd be happy. And I, I did that and, um, and started going down that rabbit hole. And I think, Sarah, that only because I had such mentors, poets, um, I say, <laughs> above and around me, I say above, because I mean, these are poets who've been doing the discipline for, for decades. I mean, accomplished, really. In fact, one of the teachers there is now the Poet Laureate of the United States, Ada Limon. So really wonderful people. So I will tell you, it was really hard. And I don't think that I could have done it if I hadn't had, you know, this kind of ongoing uh, period of, of two years of support. Yeah. It was really tough. Um, there was a lot of sadness. I mean, there, there was a lot of sadness that I thought, I thought, oh, you know, look, I'm at that time, 67, 65. Uh, I've gotten over that, right? But actually, I had not. Now, this can sound perverse, but you know what? There was part of me that enjoyed that because, oh, well, here's what it is. I mean, I'm learning as I say it. Because it was through that sadness that I revisited or refound, rediscovered the love that I had for my father. And, you know, and there's a part of this poem that I'm about to read that talks about the love. And, you know, and I'll tell you, that's why I thought when I wrote this poem, I thought, you know, I know this poem will not win this award because it's really not poetic. It's really so sort of overtly, I won't say sentimental, but it's just so, so obvious. I just state blatantly, oh, you know, and that's why it's so really crazy to have won this award. But yeah, you know, I I, uh, I had a lot of help and to go back there and find the love through through sadness, working through that. Um, and anger, you yes. know, I knew I had anger. Yeah, I knew I had anger. I knew I had guilt, shame, <laughs> all of that. You know, it was that was debilitating at the age of 11. And really, um, that was hard. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering at what point you had the confidence to call yourself a poet, because it was obviously always there. You know, that's very funny. OK, I'll just say this. I, I go to the Vermont College of Fine Arts each summer with people I love. They're they're really wonderful poets. And I took a manuscript and and it, it, they helped me turn my my book into a manuscript, gave me some great hints. And I was talking to one of my mentors there, 
And they said, oh, you, the, I said something about discovery. And they said, oh, you mean, you know, when you discovered the the, the joy of poetry or something, I, I thought discovered as if as if I had discovered that in my in my retirement. And I really I have to tell you, I took umbrage of that because I've been I've been writing poetry all my life. I have, you know, so did I call myself a poet? I didn't think of myself as a poet as a kid. But, you know, I was writing poetry as a teenager and but I didn't think of myself as a poet. I was writing songs, but I did. But I wrote poetry uh, really for for myself, you know, but, um, you know, there's some lines I wrote as a teenager that I think I still think that is not bad. And I'm just going to say one because it sticks out in my mind. Beneath the bond of breath that tries to expand its lungs lives the furious woman of a man's soul. Now, as a teenager, I wrote that. It was the first line of a poem. But, but, but the interesting thing is, I don't think it's a bad poem or a line, but it shows myself. I was telling myself, hey, man, you've got a lot of anger that you're not even looking at. Mm. I mean, I couldn't say to people, hey, by the way, you know, over a, a beer. You know, I'm a furious, I have a fear. I mean, you, who says that? But I'm telling myself that. But so I guess I've been a poet all my life. You know, I write poems for my mother because, you know, she, I thought, you know, she appreciated poetry and she was always critical, but always a little appreciative, you know. Yeah. But she was always very critical. I mean, I would give her a poem and, and she would say instantly, you know, you might want to do do this differently. And I would say, okay, well, but do you like it? Is it good? Oh, well, you know, it's not. Well, but I'm just saying, if you want to do that turnaround, you might want to do that earlier, something like that. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. so that's a long answer, but yeah, um, yeah poet. I, I, I guess I am a, a poet. You know, I've written a number of novels, but Sarah, um, I almost hate to say it, that yeah, I'm I'm not really a novelist. I don't know. It's just too hard to try to be a you know, that persona of the protagonist or the re speaker for like 400 pages. But, you know, poetry just really, gosh, it just, it, it speaks to me and I love it. I love writing it. I actually love writing it more than, more than being interviewed about it or, <laughs> or, or even, but I do love performing it. Mm -hmm. I love thinking that I can connect with an audience. Yeah, yes. You know, I really love the thought that maybe this is going to get, you know, link up with someone in a place which where, where, where no one else can be linking up with them, you know, yeah. yes. that's, yes. that's really the, the potential hopeful joy. Well, let's talk about your working life. Um, Cause I know you've been a New York taxi driver and you've also had a long career in the army, but on your website, you say you enlisted for three years in the army to gain the discipline to become a writer. Three years turned into 30 yeah. And that's quite a diversion, isn't it? I wonder how you look back on that that journey now. Oh, there's no doubt in my mind that the, that the Lord wanted me in the army, which might sound crazy, but there were there were a lot of dynamics going on in my life. Um, I was having difficulty with my family, and in fact, in Washington D.C., I got in a cab. I, I'll just cut to the chase. I was kicked out of my house. I got involved with. My wife, my my sister, and her husband's divorce. Uh, I should not have 
Don't ever do that. Anyone out there, it's not it's not any anyone's business, but um, the two who are involved in that marriage and and potential divorce. They kicked me out of the house. I was living there um, temporarily after college. And I started saying the Lord's Prayer in this cab driver's cab. I'm sure he thought I was nuts. And I joined the army a few days later. And I became, they said, you can become a, I tested quite high. They said, you can become a broadcast journalist. That leaves in six weeks. Or you can be a, a military policeman. That leaves Friday. And I thought, military policeman? That is the most, that is the farthest thing from my natural nature that I've ever, I've never even considered anything like that. And I thought, you know what? Well, I mean, in all of this, I'm only only thinking about this in hindsight, but it felt so wrong that I thought, you know what? It's gotta be right. So I did that. I thought three years, I'll gain experience. I'll have something to write about. They were gonna, I knew right away that I would get to go to Germany. I thought, well, that sounds good. That's interesting. And it was. And three years, I'll gain the, you know, I've been taking poetry classes and playwriting classes and short story classes and Samuel Beckett classes at university. And um, I thought, great, I want to be a writer. I will get discipline. I remember three years enlisting. I remember hitting 18 months because I was walking to the mess hall in at Misa Army Depot, where I was a military policeman. And... I thought 18 months, great, I'm on the downhill slide. Well, they began, you know, they don't, they don't treat you very terribly well, okay. So then after that, they started treating me quite well and giving me rather interesting, inter- very interesting assignments. They took me out of the towers where I was guarding nuclear weapons, of all things. They sent me to Stuttgart, where I was now out on the road you know, in Stuttgart, a very cool city, out on the road in a sedan, you know, with a 45 on my, and my, my, uh, my call sign was gunslinger or something. I thought that was interesting. I liked the people I worked with. They were treating me very well. I was becoming, you know, successful. And they said, well, we want to send you to no, uh, non-commissioned officer academy in Bad Tolls. Do you want to go? I said, well, sure. Okay. Um, and that by that time, they'd, they brought me up in, do they know that I'm a writer? So they've got me up in the headquarters and I'm writing. They got me writing all the time now, writing letters to people and, you know, for battalion commander. And they said, well, we want you to, we want to send you to the NCO Academy. I said, fine, that's great. So I went there and I tried very hard. You know, I'm, a, I'm just uh, like all of us, we all try hard. And at the, at the final banquet, they're announcing all these various awards. And they go, and the Distinguished Leadership Graduate Award goes to Lee Stockdale. And I was at this table with my buddies. And I didn't, I wasn't even listening to them because we were just laughing. And they looked at me and said, that's you. I said, who, what's me? They said, they just called your name. I said, for what? They said, you're the honor graduate. I said, what? And so I went up there and then, you know, that was extraordinary. And it's kind of like winning the, this poetry prize from, um, so then I got back to the, to my assignment in Stuttgart and they were all excited about that. And I got some more awards and they said, well, now you've got to go to officer candidate school. Oh gosh, officer candidate school. Well, that means I'll stay in the army. 
But you know what? At that point, they were treating me so well. And I was writing all the time. Yeah. I still have the manuscript that I was reading, was was writing, working on a book of, of poetry. I, I met um, the woman who's a, a, down the hall, who I fell instantly in love with uh, and would ultimately marry uh, within a year and a half or so. And, um, you know, we had children. I was assigned, I was now an officer. I'd gone to officer candidate school. Um, I wanted to be in the infantry. <clears throat> I wanted to be a leader of men, uh, have that experience. Uh, went to Berlin, was a platoon leader. Uh, we had a baby, our first child of five. And, um, you know, it just, she had been in the Navy. We were both happy, uh, found ourselves happy with the people that we were uh, with. And I, I did love the people in the army. It was a very, it's a very, very diverse population and sociologically. And so I stayed and um, they kept promoting me and uh, I applied to law school and I went to law school and then I became a judge advocate. So I spent the last half of a 30 year career as a judge advocate um, with fascinating jobs. I spent five years in the Pentagon and and with just wonderful people. And as a lawyer, I will just tell you, it was a wonderful practice because I was with another four or 500 lawyers who were other judge advocates. And there was none of what you see perhaps in the public sector, uh, the civil sector, uh, where lawyers are working for clients for money. And, you know, there's all that dynamic of of trying to beat the other lawyer. These were just lawyers of wonderful ethics and morals and high values, and they just want to practice good law. So, um, yeah, I was very excited to uh, to to become uh, a judge advocate, and uh, and ironically, I was a colonel, and uh, I could apply to become a general, and I did apply to become a general, and then Gail and I had. Uh, kind of a heart to heart and thought, you know what? We want to get out. We want to get out. The children, we still have three children at home. We want to sort of settle. It's been 30 years and we want to settle. So I, when I got, we were on, on having a vacation and I got back the next day and called the office that manages all that general stuff. And I said, you know, I want, I want to withdraw my application. And they said, oh, well, that's probably okay because we just had the board and you didn't make it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that was... Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, but it's an interesting, it sounds like a very interesting and fulfilling career. Um, but here we are now. And I think this would be the moment. It'd be lovely to hear the poem, Lee, if that's okay. Would you be happy to read that to us? Absolutely. My dead father's general store in the middle of a desert. It has gas pumps with red horses and wings, but it's not merely a gas station. Your father is not my father. Standing over me with a clipboard, checking off things done and left undone. He seems happy at this last stop before death for those living, before life for those not yet born, where his general store deals in flour, sugar, pieces of hacked meat or liver, reddish purple, a heart he wraps in brown paper. He cuts my hair beneath the tin awning. 
I must have gotten here from one direction or other on the road that stretches horizon to horizon, the desert heat shimmering my eyes into pools. I crawled in on my hands and knees. He handed me an ice cold orange knee-high drink. It's pure coincidence that this store is my father's. I ask him where all this stuff comes from, as no trucks travel this road to replenish merchandise no one buys. He doesn't like questions that challenge his existence. I become quiet. He's cutting my hair and might consciously or unconsciously make me look bad. You're doing a great job out here, I say, which he knows is bullshit. How many fathers, even if they are dead, set up a general store in a desert? I persist. You keep the shelves stocked, floor broomed, bathroom clean. The more I talk, the more I encourage myself to love him for the trouble he went to, making all this seem real. With cans of various sized nails, beans, rice, shelves of liquor, deli section with giant pickles. I begin to see what a dear, sweet man he is. Is this because he is dead? I wish he were alive again. I don't think he killed himself to be mean to me personally. At night, he says, howling coyotes come down from the mountains and leave notes, Bible verses, threatening messages, love letters, everything a coyote wants to get off its chest. I ask if they come every night. He says, without fail. Thank you, Lee. That's a wonderful poem. It's so personal. And you create this sort of conversation between the narrator and his father, the sort of sense of push and pull of their love for each other. And the, the obvious assumption to a reader or a listener is that you're talking about your relationship with your father. But I'm wondering, too, if you drew on your experience as a father yourself. You've mentioned you have five children. I wonder how that sort of fits into your thinking about this subject of, of the dead father. That is a wonderful question. And I've never even entertained it. And the answer is the five, my own five children are nowhere in this poem. I mean, I, and I've never thought about it because in fact, the clipboard is a vision and I, I'm an intuitive and I meditate. So he comes to me often, my dad does. And I often see him standing over me with a clipboard and that's in yoga, which Gail and I do religiously. I say that because it's so hard. And I see, I sometimes see him over, but it's, but it's in a, how do I say that? It's in a loving sounds too sweet and syrupy, but I feel like it's almost comical that he's standing over me with a clipboard yeah. judging my postures, yeah. Yeah. you know, but no, my children, that's interesting. Gosh, isn't that interesting? Because it's obviously a father poem, right? But I've never considered that, that my own kids were ever anywhere in this. That's so, so I'm happy that, that you've asked me that because uh, it's just something that now I can say definitively, yeah. they're not here. 
And then there's a sort of dreamlike quality to the poem where things are sort of, you know, not quite clear and they're moving. And um, I've read that you're very drawn to the desert and what might happen there in that sort of odd liminal space. And I'm wondering, are we talking about spiritual encounter or or, or, or what, what are you thinking about when you're thinking about the desert? Yeah, you know, I just finished last year a four-year program called Education for Ministry, first year of which was all Old Testament read the whole of it, and then New Testament. So I got a lot of the desert out of, you know, out of the Old Testament, uh, which obviously even Shakespeare would say, greatest literature in the world. I mean, you know, why look f- further? The, the Bible is just, it's unbelievable. It's, I mean, it's for some literally unbelievable. <laughs> but um, I did hitchhike back and forth in the desert. I don't know if I ever said this, but you know, it's interesting. You know, it's you can't go in one day. So I hitchhiked and I uh, I had to sleep in the desert and I had a sleeping bag. So I got off the highway and I went way off the desert. I mean, way off the road into the desert. And so you have to, and you can imagine this, it's pitch black. I mean, really pitch black. There's no ambient light. I've gotten way far away from the from the highway because I don't want anyone to find me. I'm sleeping, I'm vulnerable. Um, But then you look up and it's just this, you know, I'm a poet, so I should be able to make this more more interesting, but it's just this dome of nothing but stars. This black, it's like a planetarium, this dome of beautiful stars. And it's truly uh, memorable and singular. There's nothing like it, really. There's nothing but this dome of stars. I woke up the next morning and there was a tract like you'd find in a bus station by my head, a Jesus tract, which meant that someone had come to where I was and placed this by my head, which was a little unsettling because they found me out there in the desert. If it were a bad person, something bad could have happened. But, you know, that wasn't, there's nothing terribly interesting or spiritual about that. But I mean, when you get out there, you just have the feeling that it's a theater where anything might happen, you know, and um, I really do feel like the desert has given me permission to come back. Nobody owns the desert. Jesus didn't own the desert when he went out there for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, it's just a place where I think anything can happen, you know, whether battles or you know, love affairs or or anything. I mean, it's a theater uh, of open space. Um, and I loved it. Um, every time I was going back and forth, um, it was for a wonderful reason. Uh, I was I was hitchhiking as a college kid to go see my sister who lived in Hollywood, who was a, you know, an, a creative as they say now, but she was a, a then struggling songwriter um, and, and theater person. And so you've mentioned that faith is is part of of your life. Did you did you grow up with faith? Was that part of your childhood, your upbringing, or was that something you came to later in life? I I grew up with the trappings of faith, but but certainly I think with ev- for everyone. Well, okay, for me, I mean I had to come to faith personally, but it wasn't it wasn't really a a bolt of lightning road to Damascus. I mean it was a it was a cumulative effect. Of knowing intellectually that this is where that this is where it was at, this was where freedom was 
And this is where, in my view, uh, fulfillment is human fulfillment. Um, and so I think I think faith is is critical. Apparently, I have a lot of faith because there was a person in this education for ministry class. Actually, she was one of the teachers. And, and she makes a big deal about all the faith that I have. And it's almost caricature, you know, right. now uh, that I'm this sort of stereotypical faithful person. So my faith just grew. My mother, I know, had faith, faith in God, which I think, you know, she uh, was shaken when my father died of suicide. I remember being in church with her. I mean, she cried in church for a year or two years cried every night. I know that shook her faith. I know it shook my faith. I mean, my burgeoning faith. I was a young child. I, I think, well, in my case, faith is just something that has had to grow, snowball through the years. And my faith, you know, is, is strong, happily so. But I nurture it. I mean, I, I, I go to church every Sunday. I go to Bible study. Um, and, I, and it is because, <laughs> it's because I want to nurture this faith. I want to be a vessel for God's love, God's healing. I mean, I really feel that I've got something to do, that God wants me to do something. I was just at a family reunion with a woman who is 96. Her name is Harleen, and I loved talking with her. Of everyone there, there were dozens of people there in Austin, Texas. And she said, well, I'm 96, so I feel like God must have something she wa he wants me to do. Isn't that wonderful? She's 96, and she's still thinking, so why am I here? There's something he must want me to do, which she in implied she's not yet done yet. Yeah. She's not yeah. yet done. Yeah. So um, certainly that's the way I feel, because I, I feel like I've never, I mean, that I haven't yet done what I'm here to do. And, and, and it's this poetry. I mean, it's however I can communicate it and, and be a vessel for God's love, healing, words, you know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for what's next, for what's new, you know, for the coming, for the new. And, and do you have any particular writing plans or do you just wait and see what evolves and where it takes you? Well, I have practical plans. I'm working now on a a new manuscript. Um, I'll go next week. I've been accepted to a writing retreat, which is which means that I get to go to a cabin where they'll feed me for a week. <laughs> I can be alone for a week. So I'm so excited. I just chatted with them yesterday. I mean, I had to apply uh, months ago, but so excited to be accepted to this. There are three cabins up in the mountains. And uh, so I'll be working on that manuscript I'll be sharing it with a, a workshop in August um, in Vermont, and that's exciting. You know, it's just fun to be involved with this wonderful community of writers. And winning this prize in London was so exciting to me because really, <laughs> I've told close friends, until I won that prize, I really didn't think I had any talent. I really did. I thought I'd been, you know, just completely sort of you know, going through the motions, you know, but I thought, okay, this must mean that I have some talent, you know, putting all the, yeah, the Holy Spirit picked it aside. So now I've got some responsibility to try to, you know, 
come. It's a little daunting after winning that prize. Oh man, now what do I do? What, what can I do? But I'm just writing stuff, you know, just writing what I do. Um, and I, and I have to do it and I, I can't wait till I'm inspired. Um, I know some people write when they're inspired. I just try to write every day. I just try to, well, I do. I, I write every day or I'm, I'm revising. Um, but I try to write, I try to write something new every day, you know? Um, so, you, you know, you know, you can't write something quote good. Billy Collins is a poet, uh, a U.S. poet that I love and admire. I think he's so good. He says, if a poet is lucky, he may write two or three good poems in their in his life you know, for a lifetime. And I understand what, what he means by that. You know, a poem that'll stand the test of time. You know, even Eliot, the Quartet, The Wasteland, Proofrock, he'll be remembered even as the best, greatest poet, poet of the 21st century or the 20th century, probably remembered for three poems. So I know what Billy means. Um, so I'm still I'm still waiting for those poems um, and hoping they'll come. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.